Long ago, Rabbit lived with his grandmother deep in the dark woods. They lived far away from other people and kept mostly to themselves, not bothering anyone. Rabbit was a great trapper. All through the forest, Rabbit would set traps and snares and catch-alls and hold'ems and bring home many small animals and birds all winter long. Every day he brought home enough food for both he and his grandmother, for which she was very grateful. But as the snow continued to fall and winter worsened and worsened, Rabbit stopped being able to catch animals in his clever traps. Every time he went to check his snares, he found them empty. His catch-alls weren't catching, and his hold'ems weren't holding. He could see the animals had been there, because there were tracks all through the snow, and he could even tell his traps had caught them. But by the time he came to check his traps each day, they were gone, and the traps lay empty on the snow. Rabbit was catching, but someone else was taking, stealing from Rabbit and his grandmother. The snow grew deeper and deeper, and Rabbit and his grandmother got hungrier and hungrier. Rabbit started getting up earlier and earlier, hoping to get to the traps before the thief did, or else to catch the thief at his work. Rabbit had no idea who the thief could be. There weren't any people around to steal from him, and the rest of the forest was empty and dark except for the little animals that Rabbit trapped. So each day, Rabbit got up earlier and earlier until one day he got up so early it was still the night before. And then, late one night, or very early one morning, he found a long, long footprint in the new fallen snow around his traps. The print was long and narrow and very light. Rabbit had to really look hard to see it, but there it was on top of the new snow like a moonbeam. Rabbit resolved to finally catch the long-footed thief who was stealing his grandmother's food. Rabbit told his grandmother, The long-footed thief that steals our food is always up earlier than me, no matter how early I get up. So tonight I will not sleep. Instead, I will make a snare for him out of my bowstring and stay up all night waiting to catch him in it. Which is exactly what Rabbit did. He made a snare of his bowstring and set it up next to his traps, with a long string attached. This he took with him to a little clump of bushes where he hid and waited. When the thief came in the night and stepped into the snare, Rabbit would pull the string tight and tie it to a stout tree. Then he would see who the long-footed thief was. The forest was dark, except for the light of the moon and the twinkling stars which shone down on the new white snow. Rabbit waited a long time, and was just about to fall asleep when the moon suddenly disappeared from the sky and everything turned dark. Rabbit was frightened, but he could still just see by the starlight and kept waiting. A bright light blazed out in the forest and dazzled Rabbit's eyes. Someone was coming, sneaking through the forest, and they carried the brightest light Rabbit had ever seen, so bright that it made his eyes hurt even when he closed them. Still, they kept coming until they stopped by Rabbit's traps. Rabbit squinted and pulled hard on the string attached to his bowstring snare. He felt the thief pull and struggle and knew he had caught him. At last, he had the long-footed thief trapped. Still, 
the bright light shone out and hurt Rabbit's eyes, and the closer he got, the more they hurt. Rabbit scooped up snow to throw at the light to try to put it out, but the snowballs melted before they even got close. Then he grabbed up mud from the damp ground and threw that at the light, too, as hard as he could. The mud balls hit something, and his trapped, long-footed thief began yelling and cursing. Why did you trap me, little rabbit? Why do you throw mud at me? Untie me at once. I am the man in the moon. It is almost morning, and I must be home before dawn. You've spotted my face with mud, and if you do not turn me loose at once, I shall kill you and all your relatives. Now very much frightened, Rabbit trembled and bit his quivering lip. He did not know what to do, but he said, Swear to me that you will never again rob from my traps and snares and catch-alls and hold'ems and never come back to earth, and I will release you. I swear by my white light that I will never again come to earth or steal from your traps and snares and catch-alls and hold'ems, promised the man in the moon, who could see that even now the dawn was approaching in the east, and there would be trouble if he were not home in time. But so bright and so hot was the light of the man in the moon that Rabbit almost couldn't get close enough to release him. Rabbit shut his eyes and scrunched his nose, and still the light got through and the heat scorched him until at last Rabbit could stand it no longer and blindly rushed in, just managing to cut the bowstring with his teeth, allowing the man in the moon to rush away back home just as dawn topped the horizon. Since then, Rabbit doesn't like bright lights, and his lip quivers almost all the time, and he is shy and skittish. But the man in the moon stays where he belongs, and you can still see the patches of mud on his face that Rabbit threw at him so long ago. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Within the realm of mythological trickster characters, few have a lengthier and more distinguished career than the rabbit. Or rather, the hare. Well, the three hares, really. Actually, the almost three hares. Or rabbits. Nope, let's start again. But first, let's get this cleared up. What exactly is the difference between a rabbit and a hare? And are we going to have to make the distinction between the two every time we mention one or the other? To begin with, let's just quote from the very helpful source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, on the differences between rabbits and hares. Hares are precocial, born relatively mature and mobile with hair and good vision, while rabbits are altricial, born hairless and blind and requiring closer care. Hares and cottontail rabbits live a relatively solitary life in a simple nest above the ground, while most rabbits live in social groups in burrows or warrens. Hares are generally larger than rabbits, with ears that are more elongated, with hind legs that are larger and longer. Hares have not been domesticated, while descendants of the European rabbit are commonly bred as livestock and kept as pets. Hares have jointed or kinetic skulls, unique among mammals. They have 48 chromosomes, while rabbits have 44. 
Which only leaves us with one question. How can you tell if the thing you are looking at is a hare or a rabbit if you meet it in a field by itself without the other one to compare it to and no handy DNA lab in your back pocket? The answer? Mostly legs. Hares, by and large, have longer, spindlier-looking legs than rabbits do. Once you've worked that out, look to the ears for confirmation. The ears of the hare are generally larger and longer. Of course, that's a gross generalization because naturally there are exceptions to the rule. But legs and ears will get you successfully through about 90% of the situations in which it is vitally important that you distinguish a hare from a rabbit. Which is, frankly, about never. However, there are some exceptions worth knowing about. Just in case someone comes along and asks you to pick out rabbits and hares from a list of names at gunpoint, for instance. Someday you may thank us for the following list. Jackrabbits are, of course, hares. They inhabit much of the plains and prairies of the American West in one form or another, with the antelope jackrabbit ranging as far south as Mexico. About which more in a moment. South Asia's hispid hare and Africa's red rock hares are, naturally, rabbits, as is the popular domestic Belgian hare, which is just a rabbit bred to look like a hare. See? Barely any confusion at all. Now, the antelope jackrabbit may give you some funny ideas about rabbits or hares with horns on their heads, but we can only assure you that jackalopes do not, in fact, exist. In spite of the best efforts of taxidermists everywhere to convince you otherwise. You might be tempted to think the name antelope jackrabbit inspired the idea, but this doesn't appear to be the case. In the 1930s, the Herrick brothers, a pair of amateur taxidermists, did much to popularize the mythological animal by grafting deer antlers onto jackrabbit carcasses and selling the resulting hybrid animal mounts in Wyoming and South Dakota. Soon after, the amusement was picked up by other taxidermists, and the practice spread as the figures multiplied like, well, like rabbits. To be fair, though, the idea of a jackalope had been around for centuries. Horned rabbits turned up in the mythology and folklore of all sorts of places, from the Persian Empire of the 13th century to the Aztecs of Central America. It's just barely possible that these early tales were inspired by rabbits and hares infected with the Shope papilloma virus, though. Rabbits with the virus produce numerous horn-like structures over various parts of their bodies, and you'd certainly be taken aback by the sight of one of those as the horns can get remarkably large. So probably it is best to wear stovepipes around your ankles if you go out hunting jackalopes in order to avoid being gored, as the Casper Star Tribune of Wyoming once suggested. And finally, if the gun pointed at you during this question-and-answer period happens to be held by one Mr. Elmer Fudd, you will likely be asked whether Bugs Bunny is a rabbit or hare. Created back in 1938, and then recreated and given a better personality in 1940, Bugs Bunny seems like he ought to be a rabbit. The Warner Brothers Pictures character certainly lives in a burrow and has Bunny, meaning a young rabbit, in his name, but those are about the only two rabbity things about him. Everything else, size, morphology, ear and leg length, and a preference for the loner lifestyle, among other things, all seem indicative of Bugs being a misnamed hare. 
Add in the evidence that the word hair appears far more often in the title of the cartoon starring Bugs than Rabbit does, and frankly, the case is probably closed on this one. Bugs is a hair. If you require more proof, check out franklycurious.com and read Frank Moray's article from 2012 on the subject. Which brings us back to where we started. See, Bugs Bunny is a trickster character, and he descends from a long line of both rabbits and hares in mythology and folklore who are also tricksters. Every time Bugs ties Elmer's gun barrel in knots or disappears behind a tree only to pop up under Fudd's hat, he's living up to the finest traditions of his forebearers. And it's a tradition that goes back at least as far as the 6th or 7th century CE. The three hares, or rabbits, it really doesn't make any difference at all at this point, and hare is shorter to type. The three hares is a symbol found all over important sacred sites from the Far East into Europe and the United Kingdom. It depicts three hares seemingly pursuing each other inside a circle, with each hair forming, allowing for artistic style, one side of a roughly equilateral triangle. The odd thing is, each hair, looked at individually, has two ears coming off their head and into the center of the formation. But taken as a whole group, there are only three ears present. Each hair shares each ear with one other hair. And the best part is, even though it has been around for years all over the world, no one really seems to know what it means. It first cropped up, it seems, in cave temples in China, and then spread gradually along the Silk Road, entering into a variety of cultures that used the Silk Road to trade back and forth between the East and the West. Originally, it seems to have had something to do with Buddhism, although there is disagreement on this point. It might be that, like several other decorative symbols in Chinese folk art, it just represents peace and tranquility. From there, it turns up in Mongolian and Iranian metalwork from the 13th century, Islamic designs of the 14th century, and then, curiously, it starts showing up on churches and synagogues in northern Germany and England, in stained glass windows, floor tiles, and other ornamentation. Although, even that is sort of in dispute, as the design may not have come from east to west into Europe, but rather from the Celtic traditions and designs arrived at independently and then adapted as those of the East came into use. Whatever the origin, the three hairs were certainly significant given the number of churches they appeared in. Perhaps, the thinking goes, they were significant because at the time, the hair was thought to be hermaphroditic, which would certainly explain its ability to produce so many offspring so quickly. Being hermaphroditic meant the hair could reproduce without losing its virginity, and, of course, the only other known instance of this phenomena was the virgin birth of Christ, making it easy for the church to associate the hair with the Virgin Mary, which was often done in early manuscripts. Then again, the three hairs all share three ears between them, which is again symbolic. This time it's the Holy Trinity that gets the nod, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All this is only possible, though, because the rabbit was already a mythological figure in many traditions. Aztec mythology alone has a pantheon of 400 rabbit gods, all led by a being known as Two-Rabbit, and all of whom represented parties, drunkenness, and especially fertility. In China, Japan, and parts of the Americas, the man in the moon isn't there at all. 
Instead, the dark parts of the moon form the moon rabbit, who variously makes sticky rice treats, helps prepare the elixir of life, or just hangs around keeping the goddess of the moon company. In fact, it's an ancient Chinese text called the Chu Si that brings us to the next bit of our story about mythological rabbits. During the Warring States period, which ended about 221 BCE, an anthology of poetry and song was collected in and around the Chu, or southern, province of China. Among the collected poems is one that tells of the Jade Hare, who, along with the Toad, lives on the moon constantly pounding herbs for the immortals. And the curious part of the whole thing? Loosely translated into English, Chu Si means Songs of the South. In 1946, Walt Disney introduced what would become, in later years, their most controversial film ever, Song of the South. It combined live-action and animated sequences into a musical offering that ostensibly told the story of a young boy in the post-Civil War South who has come to visit his grandmother's plantation. There, he encounters a kindly old man named Uncle Remus, who tells him the stories and adventures of a cast of animal characters with an eye towards instructing the boy in how to be a better person. There. That was pretty neutral. Unfortunately, the film, upon release, came under almost immediate fire for the way it presented its characters, the times and places they lived, and the way they treated each other. Or at least part of the film did. Set as it is in the Restoration South, and portraying as it did blacks and whites in a still-stratified society, the live-action segments were seen as racist and the character portrayals as stereotypical. The plantation setting was criticized for being overly idyllic, glorifying the nature of the plantation and the way the whites and blacks interacted. Because of these and other problems with the film, it has never, and likely will never, be released in any form ever again. It is a permanent resident of the Disney vaults, and you certainly cannot find and watch it online in any way to see for yourself what the problems are. The movie itself was based on the works of Joel Chandler Harris. Harris was a newspaper writer and folklorist who grew up in the South and spent many of his teenage years working as an apprentice on a plantation before eventually becoming an editor on the Atlanta Constitution newspaper. In the late 1800s, Harris was a supporter of the New South. And before we get too bogged down in matters beyond our scope, let us encourage you, dear listener, to take an interest beyond this episode and see exactly what New South meant beyond the very brief and simplistic explanation we are about to give. Basically, the New South was seen as a way by some to help the Southern American states recover from the position they found themselves in after the Civil War, normalize race relations, bring the South in line with the Northern states, and improve their economy. But more importantly for our purposes, Joel Chandler Harris was also a folklorist. During his time spent on the plantation as a youth, he often heard stories told among the slaves which involved a cast of characters of unusual origin. Ostensibly, the stories featured characters like Br'er Bear, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Rabbit. The word Br'er just means brother, as expressed in the local vernacular. When asked to fill in a few column inches in the Atlantic Constitution, 
Harris did so by introducing the character of Uncle Remus, who would drop by the paper's office and talk about the relevant social issues of the day. When asked to continue the column, Uncle Remus was brought back and retold the stories Harris had picked up during his days on the plantation among the slaves. Each story was verified for accuracy in the retelling before it saw publication in the paper, and eventually the published stories were collected in 1870 into a book called Uncle Remus, His Songs and His Sayings. It became an overnight sensation. See, Harris wrote the stories exactly as he had heard them, preserving the language and the dialects of the people telling the stories. No one had really done that before. No one had thought it worth doing until he did it. And the fact that the characters, locations, and stories themselves were ongoing continuous narrative elements rather than one and done meant that the animals in the stories took on lives of their own beyond the scope of the narrative. Br'er Fox, Br'er Bear, and other characters would often make reference back to earlier adventures or attempts to catch Br'er Rabbit, which gave the stories a continuity not seen in the Western fairy tale tradition. Joel Chandler Harris's Br'er Rabbit stories had such an impact that they influenced the works of people like Rudyard Kipling, A.A. A. Milne, Beatrix Potter, Enid Blyton, and more. But there's a problem. See, the stories weren't original to Harris. They came from the blacks he lived and worked among. And this, more than anything else, has contributed to the fading of Harris's legacy. Amid accusations of cultural appropriation and the fact that the stories make use of a now stereotypical avuncular black character in the form of Uncle Remus, the dialect on display, and the plantation setting, they've fallen out of favor over the years. Much like the Disney film, the stories have become an embarrassment to some and an offense to others. And so, Harris doesn't get much credit these days, despite his undeniable influence on other writers. Of course, the stories of Br'er Rabbit aren't exactly entirely original to the people who told them to Harris in the first place. Yes, collectively they have formed a southern black oral tradition all their own, but the individual stories have come from all sorts of places. Last week, for instance, we told you the Apache story, Coyote Fights a Lump of Pitch, which you no doubt noticed was incredibly similar to the story of Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby. In fact, they're nearly identical, save a few details, and the fact that at the end of the coyote story, he manages to get away. In the Br'er Rabbit version, he's just hauled off by Fox, and the story ends. In fact, the whole of the Br'er Rabbit tradition comes from a variety of sources, most of which are originally from Africa and came along with the slaves who were transported to America. There, the oral traditions of many people were mingled together, including not only the various locations in southern, western, and central Africa, but also, once they arrived stateside, the traditions of several Native American tribes. Even Br'er Rabbit himself turns out to be an amalgamation of several trickster characters, Coyote from Native American traditions on the one hand, and Nancy the Spider from African traditions on the other. Which is fine, really. It just means that the rabbit is the most complete trickster of all the trickster characters. Because that's what tricksters do. They're clever and quick-witted. They defy authority and power. 
they disrupt the social order and change the world. And they're not afraid to change their shape to do it. Welcome to the end of another handcrafted episode of GM Word of the Week, and the end of January, which we did not make by hand ourselves. We hope you're doing well. We are, as ever, supported by the kind contributions of our listeners on Patreon. Together they help keep the show up and running and moving forward. Our patrons bring you ad-free episodes and get access to transcripts, live chats, and special bonus episodes exclusive to them in exchange. If you'd like to help support the show and get access to neat things as well, head over to gmwordoftheweek.com and click the yellow banner at the top of the page. Don't worry, you'll get access to all the things we've already done, too. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, who strongly encourages you to look into all these issues yourself before writing your strongly worded letter to the show. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Owl, said Rabbit shortly, you and I have brains. The others have fluff. If there is any thinking to be done in this forest, and when I say thinking, I mean thinking, you and I must do it. <laughs>